Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. There is a sequence of film footage that runs for approximately 22 seconds. This 8mm piece of film is only 25 feet in length and yet it is possibly the most watched piece of celluloid in history. It's not a sequence from a Hollywood blockbuster but it's certainly the most famous home movie ever. In those brief 22 seconds we witness the slaying of the most powerful man on the planet. An incredible moment in time captured forever, not by Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick or Martin Scorsese, but by a Dallas dressmaker. The film depicts the exact moment that President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated on the 22nd of November 1963. And the story behind the shooting of the film and its aftermath is one of the most important tales in recent history. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the Zapruder film. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. I think it's all over. It is now. It's gone. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Amid all the conspiracy theories that surround that fateful November day in 1963, there is one piece of evidence that answers so many questions, and yet, at the same time, leaves so many unanswered. It is the brief but infinitely shocking piece of film recorded by an amateur cameraman in the crowd, Abraham Zapruder. Initially, he'd left his camera at home that day, but returned to collect it, only to record those 22 seconds of truly earth-shattering footage 
that still to this day remains the subject of diverse interpretation. The most famous amateur movie in the world was recorded from a vantage point on a low concrete wall on Dealey Plaza in Dallas to the right front of the approaching presidential motorcade. Despite its notoriety, no description can replace an actual viewing of the Zapruder film itself. As this particular episode is the focus on the Zapruder film, I will try to avoid the numerous conspiracies that spring up pretty much seconds after the assassination. There will of course be some reference to them however, as even with such a definitive piece of evidence, there are still a thousand unanswered questions here. The day before, November the 21st, 1963, President Kennedy, accompanied by his wife Jacqueline Kennedy and Vice President Johnson, began their two-day, five-city fundraising trip to Texas. The trip was also believed to be an attempt to help bring together the feuding Democratic Party in a state that was vital to Kennedy's chances for re-election in 1964. Although Adlai Stevenson, the US ambassador to the United Nations, had been confronted by protesters a month earlier and struck on the head by a placard during a visit to Dallas, the president was warmly welcomed at the first two stops, San Antonio and Houston, as well as Fort Worth, where the presidential party spent the night of November the 21st. The following morning, November the 22nd, the President made a speech in the parking lot in front of the hotel in which he had stayed, and then speaking again at a Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce breakfast, Kennedy and his party then made a short flight to Dallas's Lovefield Airport. After Dallas, the next scheduled stop was to be Austin. At the airport, the President and the First Lady shook hands with the welcoming crowd of well-wishers and got into the back seat of the customised open convertible, along with Democratic Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife, who sat in jump seats in front of the presidential couple. Next stop, the trademark, where Kennedy was scheduled to deliver another speech. An estimated 200,000 people lined the 10-mile route to the trademark. Early that morning, rain fell on Dallas. By noon, however, the rain cleared and the sun began to peek through the clouds.
Abraham Zapruder was born in Russia in 1905. Privation, persecution and sometimes near starvation brought him and his family to America in 1920. Zapruder was a hard-working man who over the years had built up a very successful business called Jennifer Juniors which manufactured ladies' dresses. His offices were based in the Daltex building at 501 Elm Street, the corner of Elm and Houston Street. Diagonally opposite lay the public park of Dealey Plaza. Directly west across Houston at 411 Elm stood the Texas School Book Depository building. Zapruder was a keen amateur cameraman and spent many hours taking still photos or home movies of his family. This particular morning, Abraham Zapruder was working on his fourth floor office and was excited about the President's visit with a motorcade due to pass directly beneath his office window. The morning was dull, overcast and rainy so Zapruder didn't bother bringing in his camera as he felt it would not be suitable for filming. But by 10am, however, after a lot of badgering and urging from his clerks and his staff, he returned home to fetch his camera. After all, it wasn't every day that the President of the United States visits your neighbourhood. The camera bought only the year before was a Bell & Howell 8mm Director Series Model 414PD. Serial number AS13486, fitted with a Veramat zoom lens. With this particular camera, images would be recorded on a 25-foot spool of 16mm colour film with a sprocket advancing mechanism, but it would only expose on one half of the film. When that half was used up, Zapruder would have to reverse the roll of film in the camera and expose the other half. After being developed, the film would be precision slit down the middle and the second half of what would now be standard 8mm film would be glued to the first half. The final product would be a single reel of 8mm film now 50 foot long. Zapruder's camera that day was loaded with Kodachrome 2 safety film, less grainy good for taking more saturated colour images outdoors. He had previously taken a few frames depicting his grandchildren playing to ensure that it was loaded correctly. The downside of using this film was that it was not easy to develop and would have to be sent to a Kodak laboratory for processing. The camera contained no batteries or power source. Instead, it featured a flush-mounted crank on the right side of the camera's body that was popped out by pushing a button. The camera would be fully wound after 35 revolutions of the crank. The power came from the mechanism within, and at full wind, the camera would run for 73 seconds at a time, exposing about 15 feet of film. At normal speed, the camera would run at 16 frames per second. Later, when the camera was tested, it showed that Zapruder's camera was running at 18.3 frames per second. Crucial information for establishing the time clock of the assassination.
After returning to the office, just after noon, just as the skies began to clear, Abraham's Zapruder, realising that his office window was perhaps not the best vantage point, left the building and headed off downtown to Elm Street on the plaza to find a better location. The first ledge he stood on was too narrow, and Zapruder felt that he couldn't balance particularly well there, so he moved further down. But there were signs blocking his view. A little further down, near the underpass, he found a square of concrete. On the north of the grassy knoll, he tried the concrete steps of the pergola, but again was not too happy with the view. The motorcade would be approaching very soon. So Zapruder checked that the take-up reel was working okay by shooting a couple of frames of his office receptionist, Marilyn Sitzman, who had joined him, as well as shots of two people sitting on the bench at the pergola, his payroll clerk Beatrice Hesker and her husband Charles. Zapruder explained later to the Warren Commission, I was shooting some of the pictures to start my role from the beginning. I didn't want to have a blank. Zapruder still wasn't happy with his position. He spoke with Marilyn Sitzman, who suggested he stood on the small concrete abutment that formed part of the pergola built onto the slope of the north hill of the plaza, better known now, of course, as the Grassy Knoll. It was halfway between the Texas School Book Depository and the railroad underpass. day, there were 22 photographers on Dealey Plaza, not just Abraham Zapruder. The majority of them were amateurs just like him, and were positioned along that final part of the motorcade route. As well as movie cameras, there were people shooting black and white or colour stills, 35mm slides and Polaroids. None of them would have the same impact as the footage that Zapruder shot that day. As the lead motorcycles made their way round Houston onto Elm Street, from his concrete vantage point, Abraham Zapruder began filming, but then stopped. It wasn't the president's car, not yet. He recranked the camera's mechanism back to the full wind in order to give himself the maximum amount of filming time. here we go, said Zapruder, pressing the button once more, as soon as he saw the presidential couple heading towards him. Footage begins with a shot of the President and the First Lady smiling in the November sunshine waving to the crowd. JFK briefly brushing his hair from his face. The limousine then vanishes for a moment as it is obscured by a freeway sign and then the Kennedys reappear. As the car emerges in line with the camera, 
Lapruder stated that he heard a shot. The president's clenched hands clearly reaching up to his throat, his face distorted in pain. The president hunches forward. Governor Connolly turns around to his right, peering into the back seat. The governor then begins to turn back, goes rigid, and shows signs that he too has been struck. Jackie Kennedy is staring at her husband who is leaning forward and to his left. There is a look of sheer confusion on her face. The car dips into the lower part of the camera frame. The president's body sinks down in the car towards his wife. And then there is an almost imperceptible forward movement of the president's head. And then suddenly his head explodes in a spray of blood and brain matter. Kennedy is propelled violently back into the rear seat of the car, then bounces forward and slides to the left in Jackie Kennedy's arms. Zapruder, still filming, screamed out, They've killed him! They've killed him! The savage backward lurch by the president occurs to the eye at the same instant as the fatal wound. Jackie Kennedy scrambles over the back seat, reaching out for a fragment of her husband's skull on the back of the car. The Secret Service agent Clint Hill jumps aboard from behind, pushing her back into the seat. The limousine speeds off under the railway bridge, heading as fast as it can to Parkland's hospital. On Dealey Plaza, there was complete pandemonium. For the briefest of moments, Abraham Zapruder and Marilyn Sitzer just stood paralysed, unable to comprehend exactly what had just happened. And then bang, there was a loud crack as someone dropped a soda bottle. Jolting out of their shock trance, they could see that pretty much everybody on Dealey Plaza was lying flat on their faces there on the side of the hill. There is a photo of this exact moment taken by James Orkins of the Associated Press. It shows Abraham and Marilyn faintly visible in the far background. Abraham dressed in his hat and bow tie, holding on tightly to his camera. Windsor Pruder was called before the Warren Commission to testify, declaring his version of the events that day. He described himself as wandering and in a state of shock. He recalled... And then, I didn't even remember how I got down from that abutment there. But there I was, I guess, and I was walking toward, back towards my office, and screaming, they killed him, they killed him. And the people that I met on the way didn't even know what had happened, and they kept yelling, what's happened, what's happened? I kept on just yelling, they've killed him, they've killed him, and finally got to my office and my secretary. 
I told her to call the police or the secret service. I don't know what she was doing and that's about all. I was very much upset. Before returning to his office in his dazed state as he climbed down from the concrete abutment and wandered confused across Dealey Plaza, he was approached by Harry McCormick of the Dallas Morning News. McCormick had been told by Beatrice Hester, one of Zapruder's staff, that Abraham Zapruder had filmed the whole thing. Zapruder refused to speak with McCormick saying, I got it all on film and that he would only talk with federal authorities. McCormick was an experienced crime reporter in the town and knew Forrest Sorrells, the head of the local secret service, well. He sent Zapruder on his way back to the Jennifer Jr.'s office and rushed off to find Sorrells. Back at the office, Zapruder's secretary had little luck getting hold of the police. Understandably, they were going to pay little attention to a phone call claiming that an amateur had filmed the assassination. The camera, still loaded, was placed on a filing cabinet near his desk. Abe turned to his secretary and said, I've got it all on there. Later, when he tried to piece together the traumatic events of that day, he would recall, Well, I was in a state of shock when I got back, and I was kicking and banging the desk. I couldn't understand how a thing like this could happen. I personally have never seen anybody killed in my life, and to see something like this, shooting a man down like a dog, I just couldn't believe it. The scenes he witnessed that day shocked him to such an extent that for the rest of his life he suffered recurring nightmares and never recovered from the horrible sight. Abraham Zapruder sat at his desk and wept. Eventually, Abe managed to contact his daughter-in-law, Margie. The news had of course hit the radio by now, and she, like everybody else in the nation, were aware that the president had been shot, but didn't know yet that he was dead. But Abe knew. Abe had witnessed it all. There was no way that John Kennedy had survived the assault. Secret Service agent Forrest Sorrells had gone to the Parkland Hospital with the wounded president, but returned to the plaza at around 12.45. Returning to the sheriff's office to interview witnesses, he was told by reporter Harry McCormick that Abraham Zapruder had recorded the whole thing. They made their way over to Zapruder's office just after one. By now, the camera had been securely locked away in the office safe. On their arrival, they were met by another reporter, Darwin Payne of the Dallas Times-Herald. Payne had already made an offer of several hundred dollars for the film and also suggested that he get it developed at the offices of his newspaper. Zapruder flatly refused, insisting that it be handed over to the Secret Service or the FBI. 
He just wanted to do the right thing. Not wanting to be outdone, rival reporter McCormack on hearing the offer made one of his own. $1,000. Again, Abe refused. The two dejected reporters were shown the door to the outer office whilst Abe spoke with Forrest Sorrells of the Secret Service. Six months later, at the Warren Commission hearing, Sorrells described his meeting with Zapruder. And Mr Zapruder was real shook up. He said that he didn't know how in the world he'd taken those pictures, that he was down there and he was taking the thing there and he says, my God, I saw the whole thing, I saw the man's brains come out of his head. Identifying himself, Sorrells then asked if it would be possible to get a copy of the film. Sorrells also stated that Zapruder agreed to provide a copy with the understanding that it was strictly for official use of the Secret Service and it would not be shown or given to any newspapers or magazines as he expected to sell the film for as high a price as he could get for it. This statement seems to contradict the opinion of many who were there that day. Later, as we will discover, Richard Stolley, who eventually purchased the film on behalf of Life magazine, believed that at that particular moment in time, Abraham Zapruder was in such a state of shock, he would have willingly handed the film over to the government if asked. You must also remember that it's barely an hour or so since the assassination, and with the federal government in complete disarray at this point, if someone in authority had asked him for the film, Abraham Zapruder would probably have relinquished it. Following Darwin Payne's suggestion that they could possibly develop the film at the offices of the Dallas Times-Herald, Harry McCormack of rival publication The Dallas Morning News now suggested the film be developed there. Secret Service agent Sorrells wasted no time in commandeering a squad car to take them the five blocks to the offices across town. Crammed in the car with the car's two original occupants, the two police officers on duty that day, along with agent Sorrells, Abraham Zapruder, reporter Harry McCormack, and Abe's business partner Erwin Schwartz, who clutched the film tightly to his chest. With the car lights flashing and the sirens wailing, the six men pushed their way through the still crowd-heavy streets on their way to develop the film. But it was not going to be as easy as that, unfortunately. Over the following nine hours, they would visit seven different plants and offices. But of course, as we mentioned earlier, developing this type of double eight millimetre film would take some specialist knowledge. Arriving at the offices of the Dallas Morning News just after 1.30pm, they soon discovered that there was no one there, according to Agent Sorrells, to tackle the job. Next door, the newspaper had its own TV station, WFAA-TV, Channel 8 on the ABC affiliate. Surely they could do it. 
Here, they were told by Bert Ship, the assistant news director and chief photographer, that their best chance of getting the film developed would be at the Eastman Kodak Processing Laboratory near Love Field. They tried calling, no answer. The plant was in the process of closing early for the weekend, with the staff obviously in shock following the news. When they called the emergency number, however, Agent Sorrells managed to speak with Jack Harrison, the staff supervisor. He explained the importance of the role of film, saying it was official business, and requested that a line be shut down and made ready as they needed it now. Whilst these arrangements were being made, Abrams Apruder was interviewed live on air by the station's programme director, Jay Watson. What follows is the actual audio footage from that interview. But if you look at the visuals from that TV appearance, you can see Abrams Apruder still neatly dressed in his smart dark suit, complete with bow tie and white pocket handkerchief. Throughout the interview, he appears quite agitated and disturbed and repeatedly clears his throat. Being thrown so violently into the limelight was not an everyday occurrence for poor old Abe. A gentleman just walked in our studio that I am meeting for the first time as well as you. This is WFA-TV in Dallas, Texas. May I have your name, please, sir? My name is Abraham Zapruder. Mr. Zapruder? Zapruder, yes, sir. Zapruder. And would you tell us your story, please, sir? I got out and uh, about a half hour earlier and get this a good spot to shoot some pictures. And I found a spot, one of these uh, concrete blocks that I have down near that park near the underpass. And I got on top there. There was another girl from my office. She was right behind me. And as I was shooting, as the president was coming down from Houston Street making his turn, it was about halfway down there. I had a shot. And he uh, slumped to the side like this. Then I had another shot or two, I couldn't say it was one or two. And I saw his head practically open up, all blood and everything, and I kept on shooting. That's about all. I'm just sick, I can't. I think that pretty well expresses the entire yeah. feelings Terrible. of the whole world. Terrible. You have the film in your camera, we'll try yes, to Yes, I brought it on the studio now. We'll try to get that processed and have it as soon as possible. Right now we have videotape. Uh, a picture of the building of where the uh, bullet came from. Let's take the picture first, then the videotape. Oh, this is videotape now. This is a picture of the Hearst leaving uh, Parkland Hospital with President Kennedy's body. As I understand it, uh, the body is being taken to one of the funeral homes here in Dallas. That, Bob, that pretty well covers it, I think. This is the same hospital that President Kennedy visited in his visit here in 1961. It is not. Excuse me. He went, this is the outside shot of the hospital and the people who are gathered there. All stunned in the realization that President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas today. Now we have a picture of the building... 
There's a picture of the building that one of the boys took showing uh, possibly one of the windows that the that the uh, that was used. The top right hand. Okay, which one which one was it? Uh, let's see if we can figure it out. There it is. There is a picture of the window where the gun was uh, allegedly fired from that killed President must Kennedy have been the line of fire today. Excuse me, go ahead, sir. I must have been the line of fire where I see now the picture where I was. I was right on that uh, concrete block, as I said. And as I explained before, as a sickening scene, at first I thought perhaps it's a... Uh, it sounded like somebody make a joke. You hear a, a shot and somebody grabs their stomach. I was about 100 yards away from... Uh, one of our other, the boy and I walked over to see President Kennedy. We were about 100 yards away, and it sounded like there were three shots. And after the first couple, I said, uh, uh, my God, uh, they've shot the president. And then we walked over and looked down and could see the people on the grass there. And I imagine you were one of the people that we saw there uh, was, uh, underneath was, uh, the viaduct. This, uh, uh, this happened this afternoon about, uh, what time, 12.35, the president died. Something, something like it. The president died at... One o'clock. They sounded like, uh, at first they sounded like firecrackers, and somebody <clears throat> next to us said they're shooting off fireworks, but then we realized, uh, it didn't take but a minute to realize that they were uh, loud reports, and for those of you who are familiar with hearing a rifle shot, it was uh, a recognizable sound. The videotape that we have, Bobby, what do you have now? Okay, the, that is, that completes the videotape coverage for the moment. We will have film back um, in about 15 minutes of the arrest of a person who could be the person who shot the policeman or the Secret Service man or Conley or President Kennedy, and we'll have that in just a moment. Now let's go back to ABC. And so, following Abraham Zapruder's appearance on local TV, the group piled back into the police car to make the five-mile journey to Love Field. At about the same time, Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn in as the 36th President of the United States. Jackie Kennedy by his side, wearing the same dress she was wearing in the motorcade. The same dress that was splattered with the blood of her dead husband. As the police car drew up to the Kodak plant, Air Force One took off a few hundred yards away, carrying the body of John F. Kennedy. At the Eastman Kodak Lab, Production supervisor Phil Chamberlain and Dick Blair of the customer service department met the Zapruder party. Immediately, they went to work processing and developing the film. Harry McCormack still vainly making cash offers on behalf of his newspaper for a copy. Meanwhile, in Oak Cliff, a man matching the description of Lee Harvey Oswald who was by now the prime suspect in the assassination, shot dead Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett. 
According to police reports, Oswald shot Officer Tippett three times at point-blank range before one final fatal gunshot to the head. Oswald was soon apprehended at a nearby movie theatre and was arrested and brought into custody. Back at Kodak Eastman, it took about an hour to finish developing the film. The group watched the unslit 16mm version of the movie as it ran through a processing inspection projector. The projector ran at four times the normal speed and was used to check for scratches or defects on the celluloid. Of course, with the reel of film not yet split down the middle, what the group saw that afternoon was the assassination sequence on side B running along the right side of the film, right side up. The shots of Abe's family ran along the left side of the film strip upside down. Abe apologised, saying that he wasn't really much of a photographer. And then silence. The group watched in horror as they witnessed the motorcade. Erwin Schwartz, Abe's business partner, recalled, It was the clearest, most beautiful picture you ever saw. And then, that last shot, you see his head come off. And I mean, you could see it so clear. It was an absolute shock. Kodak employee Phil Chamberlain remembered, you could feel that he definitely had pictures of what had happened. And we saw the one frame where Kennedy's head literally exploded. Abe refused to let them run the film again through fear of it being damaged. But then there appeared to be a slight hitch in the proceedings. The Kodak lab in Dallas couldn't make duplicates. In order to do that, they usually sent the films to the Kodak headquarters in Rochester, New York. Well, Rochester obviously would be too far away as they needed these copies as soon as possible. So someone suggested that local motion picture organisation, the Jameson Film Company, might be able to do it as long as the original was kept in its unslit 16mm form. That way, they should be able to run it through their 16mm duplicating printer. Phil Chamberlain of Kodak signed an affidavit confirming he developed the original film, and it wasn't until about 7.30 that evening that the film was finally duplicated. Three copies were made at the Jameson Company. Although, conspiracy theorists will attest that there were more, or less, depending on what conspiracy theory you subscribe to. The duplicating process could not, however, reproduce the material filmed on the sprocket holes, which accounted for about 22% of the images. Abraham Zapruder's original film captured images from edge to edge of the celluloid, including that around the sprocket holes. Only the original piece of film retained the sprocket images. 
These three copies were then taken back to Kodak at Love Field in order to develop and process the three 16mm films of the duplicates. So now, there were four 16mm double perforated films. Again, it's unclear at this point which of these films were slit down the middle and spliced at this point as different accounts recall different stories. Eventually, by about 10 o'clock that evening, Abraham Zapruder and his business partner Erwin Schwartz finally handed over two copies of the film to Agent Max Phillips of the Secret Service offices at Hervé Street. Copy 1 was retained in Dallas, and Copy 3 was put on a plane that evening and sent off to Chief James Rowley at Secret Service headquarters in Washington, D.C. Abraham Zapruder retained the original and Copy number 2. And driving home that evening, he thought back to what had happened that day. The tragedy he had witnessed. He now found himself responsible for the recording of the assassination of the President of the United States. It was a burden that would only get heavier as his mind filled with grief over the death of that young man. Anxiety for the Kennedy family and revulsion at the violence the film depicted. There was discomfort at the thought of any financial gain and a deep uncertainty about what to do with it. For Abraham Zapruder, this was only the first step on a long and painful journey for both him and his family. It also leads us into the second part of our story as we discover what became of the film itself. Life magazine, first published in 1936, was a weekly picture magazine that was a pioneer in photojournalism and one of the major forces in that field's development. It was long one of the most popular and widely imitated of American magazines. It was founded by Henry Luce, the publisher of Time magazine, and quickly became a cornerstone of his Time Life publications. From the outset, Life emphasised photography with gripping, superbly chosen news photographs amplified by photo features and photo essays on an international range of topics. Its photographers were the elite of their craft and enjoyed worldwide esteem. Life's war coverage of World War II, Korea and Vietnam, as well as numerous regional wars, was consistently vivid, authentic and moving. It continued in the same weekly format until 1972 and then became a monthly publication between 1978 and March 2000. Today, Life's name is still used, but this is mainly for things like special features and books. 
but back in 1963, it was at the height of its popularity. Within hours of the assassination, Life magazine editor Richard Stolley flew to Dallas from Los Angeles. In his Dallas hotel room, he received a phone call from a Life freelancer based in Dallas named Patsy Swank. Stolley would recall many years later, and the news she had was absolutely electrifying. She said that a businessman had taken an 8mm camera out to Dealey Plaza and photographed the assassination. I said, what's his name? She said she didn't know how it was spelt, but it's pronounced Zapruder. I picked up the Dallas phone book and literally ran my finger down the Z's and it jumped out at me. The name spelled exactly the way Patsy had pronounced it, Zapruder, comma, Abraham. Saturday morning, Life magazine's Richard Stolley waited patiently at Abraham Zapruder's offices, prepared to offer up to $50,000 for the rights to the still images of the film. Abe called him into his office, and there he screened it for Stolley and two Secret Service agents. No other sound in that darkened room, apart from the rhythmic click-clicking of the movie projector. Silence until the moment of impact when the president's head exploded in a shower of red. At that point, the three spectators simultaneously flinched as if they'd all been gut-punched. Stolly would recall it was the most dramatic moment in my career in journalism, seeing that unbelievable thing for the first time. I thought, in that instant, There's no fucking way I'm going to walk out of this building without that film. Two dozen more reporters filtered their way through to Abe's offices that morning and the pressure of repeated screenings of the horrific moment slowly began to get to him. Through sheer luck, Stolly had been the first reporter to contact Abe following his obligation to hand copies of the film over to the authorities. Stolly waited patiently throughout the morning as the other pressmen clamoured around Abe, pressuring him with shouts of Promise me you'll sign nothing, Mr Zapruder, or Don't sign anything, or Talk to us, you've got to promise us. Abe was shattered and shell-shocked by the whole affair, the press snapping at his heels all day. The night before, he'd been visited by nightmares, nightmares that would haunt him for the rest of his life. Alexander Zapruder, Abe's granddaughter, would recall many years later, Richard Stolley and Life magazine offered him a safe harbour in a sea of sharks. Abe and Stoller sat together for over half an hour in his private office, where they chatted and negotiated with the remaining newshounds baying for blood in the corridor. Stoller initially offered $5,000. Abe let the figure hang in the air for a while, and continued the conversation about the president and the assassination. 
He recalled the previous evening's nightmare as the frenzy outside the office reached fever pitch. With every bang on the door, Abe would flinch, increasing his desire to get the negotiations over and done with. Reporters continued pounding on the door, anxious for their chance at the negotiations. Abe winced. Stolly rose to call his editor, and Abe just quietly said, Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. After typing up a brief contract, Stolly slipped away quietly via the back door, the original film tucked under his arm. Abe keeping the duplicate that had been made the day before. By now, the Secret Service had begun to realise the gravity of the mistake they had made by not obtaining the original film when they had the chance. The FBI and the Secret Service now only had access to duplicate copies of the film, and nowhere in Dallas was able to make further copies. Even if copies were made, the quality would deteriorate, which was totally unacceptable when you consider it was a vital piece of visual evidence in the assassination investigation. In fact, unbelievably, the Secret Service's field office in Dallas didn't even have a projector to screen the film. And on top of this, as they only had access to duplicates, of course, these did not include the visual information between the sprocket holes of the film. Information that was only present now on the roll of film held by Life magazine. And so, copy number one of the film was put on a plane to Washington, where it took a further three days to make three further duplicates. Meanwhile, on the Saturday, the in-camera original of the film was sent by Richard Stolley to Chicago, where Life's printing plant R.R. Donnelly was located. Once again, the film was screened over and over as the staff decided which stills to use. There would not be enough time to print in colour, not for this edition anyway. Over 100 8x10 black and white stills were laid out on the floor at the printing plant, while Roy Rowan deliberated over which ones to print. No doubt the most time was spent studying and scanning frame 313, the gruesome image of the bullet's impact on the President's head. Rowan decided against it. During the day, Amongst all the rushing and the hustle and the bustle while the prints were being made, six frames of the original film were damaged. Four frames were removed and large splices appeared on the original. Of course, as years went by and conspiracy theories flew backwards and forwards, rumours surrounding these missing frames would take on an enormous importance. The matter wasn't helped by the fact that Life didn't publicly disclose this information until much later. It was adding further fuel to the conspiracy theory flames. 
by mid-morning on Sunday, the Life magazine issue was wrapped up and ready to print. A couple of hours earlier, at 9.30 on Sunday, November 24th, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald, after nearly seven hours of questioning the day before, was signed out of jail in anticipation of a transfer to the county facility. After a final round of questions, the transfer party left the sheriff's office at the Dallas police station and headed towards the basement. A crowd of police and press with live television cameras gathered to witness his departure. As Oswald came into the room, Jack Ruby emerged from the crowd and fatally wounded Oswald with a single shot from a concealed 38 revolver. Ruby, who was immediately detained, claimed that rage at Kennedy's murder was the motive for his action. Some called him a hero, but he was nonetheless charged with first-degree murder. This decision was eventually reversed in 1966 by the Texas Court of Appeals and Ruby would eventually die of lung cancer in January 1967 whilst awaiting a new trial. The death of Oswald had unintended consequences for the Zapruder film. With Oswald's death and subsequent absence of any trial, the Zapruder film displaced Oswald's view from the six-storey window of the book depository. The public were now denied the opportunity to hear how the assassination unfolded through the eyes of Oswald. If Jack Ruby had not murdered Lee Harvey Oswald, we can only speculate what role Abraham Zapruder's home movie would have played in history. Quickly, before Life magazine went to press, the issue was updated to reflect that morning's activities. The headline was changed, a few more lines of text added, and a further photo included that of Oswald just before Ruby fired the fatal shot. The issue of Life magazine, with a publishing date of November 29th, 1963 on its front cover, featured the Life logo in a black box instead of its usual red colour. 30 frames from the Zapruder film were contained amongst its pages, printed in black and white. A further edition appeared a week later, December 6th, 1963, called the John F. Kennedy Memorial Edition, this time featuring colour images. Stills were again used the following year in October 1964 for a special article on the film and the Warren Commission report, and Life magazine would again make use of the images in editions that appeared in November 1966 and November 1967.
barely a week following the assassination, Lyndon Johnson established a commission to investigate Kennedy's death. Since Oswald was killed so soon after murdering the president, his motive for the crime remained unknown. The President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy was established on the 29th of November 1963. The commission was led by Chief Justice Warren, a former Governor of California who was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1953. The commission also included two US Senators, two US Representatives, a former CIA Director and a former World Bank President. During its investigation lasting almost a year, the Warren Commission, as it was commonly known, reviewed reports by the FBI, Secret Service, Department of State and the Attorney General of Texas. It also scrutinised Oswald's personal history, political affiliations and his military record. The group listened to testimony of hundreds of witnesses and travelled to Dallas several times to visit the site where Kennedy was shot. Part of this investigation of course included the Zapruder film. Initially the commission viewed the second generation copy held by the FBI. In January 1964 after deciding that the quality of that particular copy was so poor they requested the original, now of course in the hands of Life magazine. Life brought the original to Washington in February for the Commission's viewing, and it also made colour 35mm slide enlargements from the relevant frames of the original film for the FBI. From those slides, the FBI made a series of black and white prints which were given to the Commission for its use. The Warren Commission published an 888-page report and presented it to President Johnson on September 24, 1964. It was released to the public three days later. The commission concluded that the bullets that killed Kennedy and injured Governor Connolly were fired by Lee Harvey Oswald in three shots from a rifle pointed out of a six-floor window in the Texas School Book Depository. The report described Oswald's life in great detail, including a visit he made to the Soviet Union. But the report made no attempt to analyse his motives. In addition to this, the Commission found that the Secret Service had made poor preparations for the Kennedy's visit to Dallas and had failed to sufficiently protect him. The report also concluded that Jack Ruby had acted alone in killing Oswald. Looking back now, you can see why there are so many conspiracy theories surrounding the assassination. Especially when you look at the evidence as presented in the form of the Zapruder film. Volume 18 of the 26 volumes of the testimony reproduced 158 frames of the Zapruder film in black and white. Frames 208 to 211 were missing. These were the frames destroyed by the Life Photo Lab technician on November 23, 1963. Adjacent to these frames, in frames 207 and 212, a splice was therefore visible. Incredibly, frames 314 and 315 were switched around, and frame 284 was a repeat of frame 283. 
This gave the impression on the film that the fatal headshot came from the back of the motorcade and not the grassy knoll, and the president's head appeared to move violently forward instead of backwards as it had actually done. In response to a further inquiry, the then director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, wrote in 1965 that frames 314 and 315 had been swapped due to a printing error, and that that error did not exist in the original Warren Commission exhibits. In early 1967, Life magazine released a statement explaining how frames 208 to 211 had been destroyed and the adjacent frames damaged. They released those missing frames from the first generation copy they had received from the film's original version. And so, on to 1969 and the trial of Clay Shaw, familiar to many today as the story at the heart of Oliver Stone's 1991 movie, JFK. Anyone that's seen the movie will be aware that the events leading up to Shaw's trial were quite convoluted and involved many different people, organisations and officials. Basically, the story is that New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, after four years of investigation, arrested and charged New Orleans businessman Clay Shaw with conspiring to assassinate President Kennedy with the help of others, including Lee Harvey Oswald. Clay Shaw was brought to trial on these charges in Orleans Parish Criminal Court. In order to successfully prosecute Shaw, Jim Garrison had to prove there was a conspiracy and that Lee Harvey Oswald had not acted alone. What better evidence to convince the jury than the Zapruder film? Abraham Zapruder himself was called to testify, and Life magazine was subpoenaed and provided a copy of the original film. Jim Garrison's opening statement revealed his intentions to court that he was going to attempt to prove that the president had been killed by a conspiracy and that he would openly challenge the findings of the Warren Commission and accuse the federal government of a cover-up. He said, The state will offer an 8mm colour motion picture film taken by Abraham Zapruder, commonly known as the Zapruder film. This film, which has not been shown to the public, will clearly show you the effect of the shot striking the president. Thus, you will be able to see in colour motion picture the president as he is being struck by the various bullets and you will be able to see him fall backwards as the fatal shot strikes him from the front. Not from the back, but from the front. Jim Garrison would take 42 minutes to read his 15-page opening statement. Oliver Stone's version of these events truly captured the tension in the courtroom and the horror as the public witnessed the Zapruder film for the first time. Just for a moment, speculate, shall we? We have the epileptic seizure around 12.15 p.m., distracting the police, making it easier for the shooters to move into their places. The epileptic later vanished, never checking into the hospital. The A-team gets on the sixth floor of the depository. 
Now, they were refurbishing the floors in the depository that week, which allowed unknown workmen in and out of the building. They moved quickly into position, just minutes before the shooting. The second spotter on the radio talking to the other two teams has the best overall view, the guard spot. B-team, one rifleman and one spotter with the headset and access to the building moves into the low floor of the Daltex building. The third team, the C-team moves in behind the picket fence above the grassy knoll where the shooter and the spotter are first seen by the late Lee Bowers in the watchtower of the rail yard. They have the best position of all. Kennedy is close and on a flat, low trajectory. Part of this team is a coordinator who's flashed security credentials at several people chasing them out of the parking lot area. Probably two to three more men are down in the crowd on L. 10 to 12 men, three teams, three shooters. The triangulation of fire Clay Shaw and David Ferry discussed two months before. They've walked the plaza. They know every inch. They've calibrated their sights. They practice on moving targets. They're ready. Kennedy's motor team makes a turn from Maine onto Houston. It's gonna be a turkey shoot. They don't shoot him coming up Houston, which is the easiest shot for a single shooter in the book depository. They wait. They wait till he gets to the killing zone between three rifles. Kennedy makes the final turn from Houston on the Elm, slowing down to some 11 miles an hour. The shooters across Dealey Plaza tighten, taking their aim, waiting for the radio to say, green, green, or aboard, aboard. The first shot rings out. Sounding like a backfire, it misses the car completely. Frame 161, Kennedy stops waving as he hears something. Conley's head turns slightly to the right. Frame 193, the second shot hits Kennedy in the throat from the front. Frame 225, the president emerging from behind the road sign. You can see that he's obviously been hit, raising his arms to his throat. The third shot, frame 232, hits Kennedy in the back, pulling him downward and forward. Finally, you will notice, shows no signs at all of being hit. He is visibly holding his Stetson, which is impossible if his wrist has been shattered. Conley is turning here now, frame 238, the fourth shot. It misses Kennedy and takes Conley in the back. This is the shot that proves there were two rifles. Conley yells out, my God, they're going to kill us all. Somewhere around this time now, another shot that misses the car completely strikes James Head down by the underpass. The car breaks. The sixth and fatal shot, frame 313, takes Kennedy in the head from the front. This is the key shot. The president going back and to his left. Shot from the front and right. Totally inconsistent with the shot from the depository. Again, back and to the left. 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 Prior to this, Abraham Zapruder had appeared on the witness stand giving his version of events that day, and as before, during his appearance at the Warren Commission, Abraham Zapruder broke down and wept. Four weeks after the start of the trial, following the presentation of the cases by both prosecution and defence, the jury retired to reach his verdict. It took them less than an hour to find Clay Shaw not guilty. 
But what became clear following the trial was that most of the jury thought that Jim Garrison had successfully proved that there was a conspiracy to kill the president. And unfortunately, he had not adequately linked the conspiracy to Shaw or provided a motive. And the overwhelming piece of evidence that convinced them of a conspiracy was, of course, the Zapruder film. During the investigation leading to the Clay Shaw trial, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison was assisted by noted conspiracy theorist Mark Lane. Lane borrowed Garrison's copy of the film and had several copies printed at a local lab. The copies, although low quality, began circulating around other assassination researchers as well as several journalists. In the meantime, financial wranglings continued over the years with regard to the footage. Life magazine, who had originally paid $50,000 for the print rights, realised that it would be a far smarter move to buy all of the rights, and so it renegotiated a deal in which Abraham Zapruder would receive six annual payments of $25,000 in exchange for both the print and the motion picture rights. Abraham Zapruder, still racked with guilt over the entire affair and also fearing anti-Semitic sentiment around Dallas as a Jewish man apparently cashing in on the death of the president, gave the first $25,000 payment to the widow of policeman J.D. Tippett, the officer who was shot dead by Oswald on the day of the assassination. Abraham Zapruder passed away of stomach cancer at the age of 66 in 1970. That year, the film received its first broadcast on late-night TV show Underground News presented by Chuck Collins, a low-key event not seen by too many people. And it would not be until five years later that the Zapruder film would finally be aired on national TV. Geraldo Rivera, the American attorney, reporter and author, is probably best known as the host of the talk show simply entitled Geraldo from 1987 to 1988. Back in 1970, Rivera was hired by WABC-TV as a reporter for Eyewitness News. Rapidly rising up the ranks, he soon began to appear on ABC national programmes such as 2020 and Nightline, before eventually becoming the host and executive producer of ABC's Goodnight America. The show was well known for its tackling of controversial topics of the era, such as marijuana use or the status of Vietnam War draft dodgers. But perhaps the most famous and well-remembered edition of the show was broadcast on the 6th of March 1975. For it was on this episode that Robert Groden, photographic consultant for the US House Select Committee on Assassinations, made history with JFK activist Dick Gregory. As guests on the show, they presented the Zapruder film of the assassination to a mass audience for the first time. Uh, 
another guest we have, Robert Groden, who is celebrating his 18th birthday on the 22nd of November in 1963. He was profoundly touched by the president's death, and he desperately wanted to understand how it could have happened. For two years, he, like most Americans, believed in the official version, the Warren Commission version of what happened, but the day he first saw that eight millimeters of Pruda film, that amateur film that was made, that was the day he stopped believing. Uh, Robert, welcome, and I wish you could set up the Zapruder film a bit for us, and we'll get right into it. Okay. Uh, Abraham Zapruder was a Dallas dress manufacturer, and it was pure accident that he brought the camera with him that day. He almost didn't. And he was looking for a good vantage point, and he picked a point on Elm Street in Dilly Plaza in downtown Dallas. As the motorcade passed in front of him, he got what is frame for frame the most valuable historical document of all time. It's become very chic among uh, television producers to uh, put a disclaimer at the head uh, of any film. The film you're about to see might be shocking, it might be horrifying, you might not want your, your kids to watch it. And I think the uh, unfortunate net effect of that is to make more people watch it. Well, I'm telling you right straight out that if you are at all sensitive uh, if you're at all queasy, uh, then don't watch this film. Just put on the, uh, the late night movie, uh, because this is, uh, very heavy. It's the film shot by the Dallas dress manufacturer, Abraham, uh, Zapruder, uh, and it's the execution of President Kennedy. And, uh, Bob and Dick, would you please narrate what we're seeing as we show this film? This is, uh, this is commercial footage leading into Dealey Plaza. This is the car on Main Street. So this film was taken by actual newsmen. This was spliced together with the Abraham Zapruder film. Yes. All right, so this is the beginning of the motorcade. Okay, what you're seeing now is in slow motion so that you can grasp what is happening. Uh, this is a film taken by Marie Muchmore that leads into the Zapruder film. It's for time continuity. The president is waving to the crowd here. And Jacqueline Kennedy, of course, is sitting alongside him in the open car. Right. This is from Orville Nix's film. This, uh, this is originally 8mm footage. And they're heading now toward Elm Street. They're on Houston Street now. They're going to make a left-hand turn. It's on the corner where they're going to make the turn there that the book depository was. Now, this is the Zapruder film. Okay, so the cars are coming along now into Dealey Plaza? Yes. These are the lead motorcycles of the motorcade. All right. Now, with the president and Mrs. Kennedy is also Governor Connolly. Right. right. Now, before he goes behind the sign, the president is waving to the crowd. When he comes out from behind the sign, he is shot. Then Governor Connolly is shot. He's already been hit. He's already been hit. And now? And at the bottom of the screen, the head shot. That's the shot that blew off his head. It's the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in the movies. Now, the Warren Commission said that all of the shots were fired from behind by Lee Harvey Oswald, a lone assassin firing at the president, and as you can see, clearly, the head is thrown violently backwards, con completely consistent with the shot from the front, right. Now, this is an extreme blow-up of just the president from the film. Right. Coming out behind the sign, he's shot. He's hit from, he's the, hit here. from the front, too. He's from, from the, the front. front. Now, Jackie doesn't realize what's happened yet. She goes to his aid. And now? He's hit Again, from the, the violent backward motion totally consistent with 80% of the witnesses, which said the shot came from the grassy knoll in front and to the right. 
It's interesting to note how many people is running towards where most folks thought the shots came from. The head goes backwards in the next film uh, from the other side of the street. Oh, God, that's awful. That's the most upsetting thing I've ever seen. We'll talk about it in a minute. Following the screening of the film on ABC, in settlement of royalties between Time Inc. and the Zapruder family, Time Inc. sold the initial rendition of the film and its copyright back to the family for the token sum of $1. Time Inc. was keen to donate the film to the US government, but the Zapruders originally refused to consent. That was until 1978 when the family transferred the film to the National Archives and Records Administration for preservation and safekeeping. In doing so, the family still retained ownership and copyright. As mentioned earlier, public interest in the Kennedy assassination was peaked in 1991 following the release of Oliver Stone's movie JFK. And it was the release of the movie that would trigger events that dramatically changed the course of the life of the Zapruda film and the family's relationship with it for the last time. Requests to screen the Zapruda film or include it in TV shows, documentaries, movies, etc. were nothing new. And so, the request from Camelot Productions didn't stand out as anything out of the ordinary. In fact, the Zapruder family received hundreds of such requests year after year. A fee to use footage was set at $50,000, not the widely reported sum of $80,000 that has been put about following the release of JFK. And the movie would eventually be released in December 1991 to a mixture of critical acclaim and severe criticism. It would win Oscars for cinematography and editing, and Oliver Stone picked up a Golden Globe as Best Director. The original footage appears several times throughout the movie, and is often juxtaposed with recreated footage resembling the original. And incredibly, one of the major things the movie managed to achieve was to mobilise the public to demand the release of previously closed records about the assassination. On October 26, 1992, then-US President George Bush signed into law the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act, more commonly known as the JFK Act. This sought to preserve for historical and governmental purposes all records related to Kennedy's assassination. The Act also created the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection at the National Archives. Cutting a very long story short, the Zapruder film was thereby automatically designated an assassination record, and as such became official property of the US government. The Zapruder family made attempts to have the original film return between 1993 and 1994 without success. In April 1997, a further statement was issued by the Assassination Records Review Board declaring that as the Zapruder film was an official assassination record, it was to be transferred on August 1st, 1998 from its location in the National Archives film collection to the John F. Kennedy Assassination Records collection. 
Because such a seizure of property is governed by US federal law, a payment had to be made to the heirs of Abraham Zapruder. How do you place a value on something so unique? Its value was certainly difficult to determine, but eventually the US government purchased the Zapruder film in 1999 for $16 million. The copyright to the film, however, was not seized and was retained by the Zapruder family. In 1997, the film was digitally replicated and restored frame by frame under license of the Zapruder family. And finally, in December 1999, the copyright to the film was donated by the family to the Sixth Floor Museum in the Texas School Book Depository at Dealey Plaza. Along with the copyright, they donated one of the first generation copies, along with other copies and frame enlargements made by Life magazine which had since been returned. The Zapruder family no longer retains any commercial rights to the film, which are now entirely controlled by the museum. In that brief 20 seconds or so, in November 1963, Abraham Zapruder captured a piece of history. A recording of a moment in time that, for all of those that have seen it, remains indelibly in our memory. For it not only brings us the death of the most powerful man in the world, but the death of a human being. A man that was a husband, a son and a father. For Abraham Zapruder himself, he described the assassination as a wound, one that leaves residual pain even after it heals. Abraham Zapruder and his family had a unique relationship to the assassination. For them, it not only meant the death of the president and the collapse of the Kennedy dream, for them, especially Abe, there was intense unease that came with the financial gain and the severe public criticism it brought with it. The Zapruder film footage, when you look at it, is just six feet of eight millimeter film, wound onto a reel of plastic that eventually turned out to be worth $16 million. But for Abraham Zapruder, it meant there was a legacy of nightmares that would haunt him night after night for the rest of his life.
1962, the Tornadoes became the first British group to top the US charts with Telstar. A record recorded in a shabby flat above a shop on London's Holloway Road. The creative genius behind this record was Joe Meek, a former farmhand from Gloucester with a passion for amphetamines, devil worship and men. Compared by some as the UK's answer to Phil Spector, Meek would knock out hits from acts such as John Layton, Hines and Screaming Lord Such and the Honeycombs. See you next time for the story of Joe Meek. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast. Or take a look at the website, which is rainbowvalley.libsyn.org. Or you can send us your thoughts and your feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Paws production.